Welcome to Conversation 360 Podcasts and another episode in our second season of Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. As with our first season, we showcase people whose life, work, and experience shed light on what's taking place in and between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, and you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. The views and opinions expressed here, please note, are those of the participants as individuals and not intended to reflect the policy or position of their companies or other affiliations. This next episode takes place in Hong Kong with my friend David Ketchum, who came to Hong Kong before the handover of Great Britain's colonial control of Hong Kong to the Chinese government. In this podcast, he traces the trajectory of his experience there, starting with multinational companies who came into China with the promise of providing investment dollars, technology transfer, and job creation in exchange for access to China as a market. That narrative has changed with the fortunes of China, and David's been there in the thick of it. His latest business is riding the hockey stick growth of digital with clients who seek help mapping their customer's journey, a skill set David has built over his years of experience in Asia. What is interesting in in an underlying way is about the sort of codependencies, right? Um, And when you look at not just from an economic point of view, but from a cultural point of view, That's David talking of the importance for someone entering another culture to find their way in that new place, noting that some, with others like them, carve out a kind of niche of their own. This is typical of the expat life, while others truly assimilate in that new world. David chose to jump in when he came to Asia and, in the process, worked on a variety of projects. I was involved in lots of fun things like, um, you know, craft cheese entering China uh, and doing a joint venture with a Beijing dairy uh, to um, produce more sort of Western style cheese in China uh, and also to do transfer of technology and things like that. And so there were lots of dinners at the Great Hall of the People and signing ceremonies and, you know, press conferences and, you know, uh, lots of ceremonies with documents getting signed and things like that. Things have changed massively since then. As for media, including social media, its use and importance differ dramatically between Asia and the West. In the U.S., we have this uh, conception of the press as being a significant force in society, and it can be the voice of different people or minorities, and uh, what happens on social media um, can actually sort of affect what happens in society. Uh, And in China, you have a different perspective, right, where actually uh, the government setting the policies and then what you see in the media or what you read is really what the government wants you to think or um, believes you should be thinking. We talk about this and much more, including how strong limits on international trade would cause a dangerous balkanization of world powers, why the traditional Western expats are dinosaurs, and just how different Hong Kong could look and feel in a short time from now. You'll hear that David is having the time of his life. So let's get started. So my first question of you is, when we talk about conversations taking place between Asia and the West, what does that mean to you? What, what, what does that bring to mind? Well, I guess a lot of the history of Asian and Western interaction has been around trade and commerce. 
Um, and I think in many discussions, and we've seen this recently, like with the uh, Trans-Pacific, the TPP, right, the trade agreement, right. um, there's often a default to that conversation being about trade. Uh, and I saw recently how, um, I guess in the context of some of the Trump discussions, um, the U.S. has a $300 billion trade deficit with China, for example. And so often those conversations between East and West um, default back to that discussion about trade. Um, uh, what kinds of goods were shipped in each direction? Uh, how many um, Chinese um, high school seniors are applying to Stanford University? You know, those kinds of, um, <laughs> the, those kind of economic-based uh, discussions. Um, and in many ways, those are kind of the least interesting, right? Uh, from a cultural perspective. Um, but just the sheer size of uh, commerce that goes back and forth, um, I guess, makes them still interesting to this day. So if, they, if it weren't about that, if it were about those more interesting aspects, where would you take that? Well, I think that uh, in my, I don't mean to sound like the old China hand, but in well, my 25 years in Asia. That makes you a China <laughs> hand. I guess um, what is interesting in, in an underlying way is about the sort of codependencies, right? Um, and when you look at not just from an economic point of view, but from a cultural point of view, and you see um, Western people dropped into Asia, uh, or you see, um, uh, you know, whether it's Chinese people or um, Singaporeans or Hong Kong or Koreans or Japanese going off to London or the United States, to see how they find their place in that conversation, to use your word, uh, or in that ecosystem, mm -hmm. and do they find their place um, in a special um, niche or groove where in which they're not actually interacting with the rest of the folks around them and the, the society around them, but they're creating their own world in the opposite culture, uh, or have they integrated, right? And do they, they really fit in? Um, and I could probably spend two hours talking about that. <laughs> tell, but, tell when you came here. Yeah. You came here how many years ago? 25. Yeah, okay. I was living in London at the time and um, following uh, Tiananmen, Tiananmen Square, quite a few uh, Hong Kong people went to get residency in um, Washington State or Vancouver or Australia or New Zealand because they were concerned after the Hong Kong handover to China uh, that, um, sorry, that, just always, that word always interests me, right? The Chinese call it the give back. Oh, I love that. And the yeah. Westerners call it the handover. Uh, There's an interesting cultural thing right there. <laughs> right yeah. there. But um, there was a tremendous opportunity here in Hong Kong uh, because so many talented people had left. Uh, and I had a rather uh, odd job interview where, or in which I said, uh, I've never been to Asia before and I don't speak Chinese and I don't have any contacts in this society. Um, but I'm an adventurer and I'd already proven that I could go to Russia and Poland and, you know, interesting, um, you know, markets that were strange to me and, and make my way. And they said, oh, don't worry about any of that. You know, we have 110 people who speak Chinese. What we need are people who can work with multinational companies and help them understand, you know, the business uh, opportunities and the, and the culture here. And, and that business was? 
That was around communications. Right. And at that time, uh, people like Microsoft were going into China and building $500 million research centers. And uh, I, some of, I was involved in lots of fun things like, um, you know, craft cheese entering China uh, <laughs> and doing a joint venture with a Beijing dairy uh, to um, produce more sort of Western style cheese in China. Uh, and also to do transfer of technology and things like that. And so there were lots of dinners at the Great Hall of the People and signing ceremonies and, you know, press conferences and, you know, uh, lots of ceremonies with documents getting signed and things like that. So the, so the heady <laughs> days of those yeah. times, because clearly that was heady stuff. Very heady days. And then often the, the CEOs of these companies would come to Hong Kong first and stay at the Mandarin Oriental um, and have a couple of nice meals before they hopped on a plane and went into China, right? But mm-hmm. now, of course, you know, there are whatever, 11 team flights a day from San Francisco direct to Shanghai or Beijing. And also um, from a, a business maturity point of view, um, those companies have already gone through that cycle, right? They've gone through their period of uh, overseas expansion and they've either found that it's to their liking or... Uh, it hasn't worked out well for them. And also from a Chinese perspective, things have really changed. And I, um, for many years, ran a business in Beijing and Shanghai. And what we found was that the, um, all, um, from a policy-driven perspective, much of China is becoming domestically focused. And so um, in the old days, uh, you know, in the early 90s, um, we would take clients into China and say, well, we've got foreign direct investment for you. We're going to transfer some technology. We're going to create jobs. We're going to pay taxes. Uh, and there were all these triggers that um, were quite interesting to the Chinese leaders. And they'd say, yeah, let's do a deal. Um, we'll give you market access in return for um, those benefits that you're talking about. But now, I mean, the Chinese don't need money. Um, they don't really need the IP. They've got the, their own ability to create it or license it or uh, find it in other ways. Uh, they don't really need the jobs, right? Um, and uh, what they do need is that stimulated domestic spending. So over the course of my time in China, then the client mix changed. So, you know, in uh, 2014, our largest client was Tencent. And what they were interested in was global access. They weren't as interested in, you know, how can you help us in China, but how can you help us launch WeChat in Australia? And Singapore, or um, you know, uh, how can you uh, give us the kind of governance that we need to be a Nasdaq-listed company? Right. A total departure from where things were. A total it, reversal. It, it's just like looking through the other end of the the telescope mm-hmm. or the funnel or whatever mm-hmm. analogy you want to use. Yeah, and that was over the course of what twenty years, right? So not a short amount of time, but from a business perspective, um, and. I mean, maybe this is the time to go back to that theme of conversations. Uh, the conversation was very much a, about uh, originally um, how can you be a value-adding uh, participant in the Chinese economy and in Chinese society, and then that conversation became instead how can you enable us to go global, um, and the sort of distinction between MNCs, you know, multinational companies, when you think about a Fortune 500. And now you've got you know Huawei and Tencent and Baidu and Alibaba and all these companies that are um, global in their own right, right? And they don't need to link up with a 
General Motors or a craft dairy or something like that in order to be important. They're important in their own. In their so, own right. David, how well do you think people in the West, not necessarily governments, but people, the individuals, how well do they understand the what's happening in Asia, especially China? Well, so I, I have two perspectives on that, uh, in that I've lived overseas a long time, but I'm also an American. I know. So. And, and I guess that's why you're asking the question, of course. But I, I am quite empathetic to the fact that a lot of this doesn't really matter terribly much, particularly to people in America. Um, and, you know, people uh, that I've met back in the States and I say, oh, I spent, you know, 25 years in Asia. And they say, oh, we went there on holiday once, right? Or, you know, my wife and I loved Shanghai or we went to Phuket to the beach and it was great. Or I went to a conference in Singapore or something like that. But particularly the U.S., and I, I guess I can't speak as much for for Europe is fairly self-contained, right? I think what's the statistic? 20-something percent of Americans have passports. And often that was to go to their cousin's wedding in Ireland, you know, once or <laughs> to go on a business trip <clears throat> to Mexico or something like that. So um, so I, I think, I guess, you, I mean, you can hear it in my voice. I have an enthusiasm and an interest and a, and a passion for this whole part of the world. And when I go back uh, to the US, often the attitude is, that must be nice for you, or, uh, oh, that sounds interesting, or I did that once, that kind of thing. But, you know, the fact is we are living in a global, a truly yeah. globalized world, so one wonders what the downside of that is. What about the other way around? How well do people in this part of the world understand the West? Well, I, I, I guess there's a tremendous range of... Uh, people and types. And so in marketing, we've been talking a lot about personas, right? So uh, a type of person who represents a whole group of people. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look into Taiwan or Singapore or um, China, you just have a group of people, and I hesitate to call them a class of people, but who are truly global. Um, and you'd be w walking down the street in Chengdu and bump into somebody and find out they have a PhD from you know, University of Wisconsin or something like that, yes, right? yeah. And it's just absolutely remarkable when that happens because you feel like you're in a completely exotic environment and then suddenly you find somebody who knows, you know, has spent years and years overseas uh, and is, is, um, is truly international. So, um, so, but often those people are wealthy um, and have access to that kind of travel uh, and education. And if they're not... Um, wealthy, they're often particularly intelligent <laughs> and have either gotten scholarships or, you know, through their companies have gotten the, uh, the access to a, a, global, a global world uh, or global perspective. Um, and then so many other uh, people have a, a, a sort of media-oriented perception of America. Uh, and, you know, it really is from this angle Looking back at the U.S., it really is like watching a, a cartoon <laughs> in action, right? You see the shootings in shopping malls and mm -hmm. uh, what's happening in, on the political scene. Um, and, you know, the U.S. is a huge uh, country with lots of things going on, but the media and the press tend to pick up on the scariest, the worst, the biggest, the most expensive, the craziest, the stupidest. And so when you sit uh, in the U.S., sorry, when you sit in Asia, 
that all comes through that filter. And instead of having that sense of sort of everyday life in America, you get this um, cartoon-like perception. And I know um, my wife is from New Zealand, uh, and when we go back to the U.S., she's always quite reassured to see that it's actually a fairly normal place where people like drive to the grocery store and buy things for dinner and uh, you know play tennis and talk to their friends and things like that because the media perception of America overseas is quite quite distorted. Um, and then I guess um, maybe talking particularly about China, you also have to look at the filter that um, government overlays on things. Um, so, you know, in, in the U.S. we have this uh, conception of the press as being a significant force in society and it can be the voice of different people or minorities and uh, what happens on social media um, can actually sort of affect what happens in society. Uh, and in China you have a different perspective, right, where actually uh, the government setting the policies and then what you see in the media or what you read is really what the government wants you to think or um, believes you should be thinking. Um, and so it's a very different kind of a, a dynamic. You've got this sort of Western, noisy, I don't know what, Facebook, CNN, <laughs> mm -hmm. sort of LinkedIn uh, uh, kind of uh, noise. And, and even though, for example, in China with many of those social media block, people still get proxies and are able to access and sort of get that view of the West. And then um, their own media is quite, uh, plays a different role in society and, and works in a different way. But it turns out, though, that their social media, their own, the, the, the stuff that they're listening to and, and watching is uh, totally robust, right? And yes. And millions of people <laughs> on it. And well, I, I think the big turning point was when we went from websites that people looked at uh, and then to social media that we interacted with, and then messaging where we communicated with one another. And I know as a marketing person, I've always been quite frustrated by that shift because a website behaves a little more like a television channel <laughs> uh, than a messaging uh, platform does. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in China, particularly if you look at um, Weixin or WeChat, um, and that's just the way people live. They don't just communicate that way. Um, and they, um, uh, I don't know, you know how many of the people listening to this are kind of familiar with the concept, but you can go to a restaurant with five friends and decide that you're gonna split the bill five ways and do it from your phone over WeChat, right? So you're not just communicating, you're actually yeah. transacting and, and there's services that can be provided and ways so, to interact. So having said that, how, though, does a, um, a government like uh, the Chinese government really keep the lid on all mm. that? How do you control all that communication and that activity, not just mm. communication? Well, I, That's a big challenge. Yeah, and I think some of the um, strictness or the authoritarian nature of the Chinese government has been overstated a little bit. Um, as I understand it, and in my communications experience, they really only care about a few things, right? So pornography, no. Uh, promoting um, international financial instruments or uh, you know, financial services products in the Chinese market, no. Uh, and then upsetting the social order, which is- The harmony. Very broadly defined, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that could be um, dissension about semi-autonomous regions and how mm -hmm. they're treated or, um, 
anything that seems to be upsetting the social order. But everything else is a complete free-for-all, right? <laughs> I can remember uh, bringing Victoria Beckham to Shanghai, and there was no restriction about anything because it was just a fun thing, right? I mean, nobody, nobody cared one way or the other. We weren't making comments about Taiwan or you know, Tibet or anything like that. That's fascinating. When was, was that, fun. actually? That would have been, um, I guess, early uh, 2004, something like that. Interesting. Something like that. Yeah. And, um, and so, in, I guess, it's kind of binary. You could say any form of censorship or control uh, is uh, limiting or stifling in some way. But I guess from a pragmatic point of view, people are pretty much allowed to talk about or do anything that, that they want. It's just when uh, you've got a country that's that big uh, and it starts to lose its um, unity or it's um, you know, fragmented into pieces, I guess that's the leadership's biggest concern. So you've been here for this long and now you have a business called Current Asia, yeah. which means you should be the expert on exactly what's happening right now and how it interacts with the rest of the world. I, I love that name. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I know my 12-year-old son said, your last business was called Upstream and this one's called Currents. And I'm like, yes. yes. Thank you. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Done on purpose. Well, I guess um, the origins of this business um, really came from an observation that there's been a shift from thinking up or creating great ideas that are compelling and interesting uh, kind of like Don Draper in Mad Men, right? Goes and bangs his fist on the on the boardroom table and says, "Here's your idea to sell tires, right?" And then using media, often paid media, to take that great idea and push it out Execute there. Execute on that. Execute yeah. on that. And what's happening now is um, that we don't look at things in terms of a campaign or uh, a marketing exercise with a beginning and a middle and an end, but actually. Each of us has our own journey, our own customer journey. Um, and using um, digital, we have the opportunity to find um, people wherever they are on that journey and start the interaction with them in a way that's appropriate to exactly where they are in that journey. And so I'll just give you a quick example. You might say, um, we have a new chocolate bar that's coming out just in time for Valentine's Day. And that's not a customer journey type of marketing, right? That's the company saying, well, Valentine's Day is every February 14th, and now we've got a chocolate bar and pushing it out and buying it. Whereas uh, in a very um, densely digital ecosystem, you can actually say, um, are you thinking about buying a vacuum cleaner? So where are you in that? Are you investigating? Uh, are you looking at different options? Are you interested in the benefits of a clean home? Kind of thing, or are you looking at model A and model B, and how much does each one cost? And you know, can you have it delivered to your house, or where can you buy it? And those kinds of things. And so, what Current Asia is about is um, helping to map those customer journeys, uh, and many of them have changed radically in the last few years, right? Where you um, want something and you click on it and you buy it, and it's in your home, uh, you know, a day later. Uh, like the Amazon Echo phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's radically changed what a customer journey can be. Um, and then matching that with the, the digital touch point. So where does social media fit in there and email? So the fact so. that it is current Asia 
Does that mean it has ramifications that would be different if you'd been in this business in the West? So the trend is global, um, but I think uh, the difference here, and it varies from market to market, mm -hmm. um, but uh, there's a cliche about how in many Asian countries, um, people jump directly to the mobile phone without ever having uh, a you know landline the in, in their house, the mm -hmm. leapfrog. Um, and some cliches are just plain true. And I think in, in the digital world, that's especially true, right? So um, we have an exceptionally high um, smartphone penetration in this part of the world. Um, we did some research recently for a financial services institution and the way they currently sign up their um, customers is they send um, two people to meet you at a coffee shop with a big pile of forms, uh, each of one which starts with your name, address, and ID card number and the date, and they fill them out all by hand at the coffee shop um, until, and it takes 25 minutes or something until you're a customer, and we turn that into an app, right? So uh, all of the information that you collect goes directly into the financial yeah. institutions. Uh, operating system and the idea of all of that is not to get rid of the people but in the business but to use them smarter in smarter mm -hmm. ways right mm -hmm. and so I guess I need to loop back and answer your question and say is that different here I'd say yes just because of the um, size and the velocity and the, the the penetration of mobile here it's it's a truly mobile first um, environment big opportunity. So what has happened regarding the slowdown, the recent slowdown, and I use that term carefully because that's still a pretty yes. big economy in China. How has that, has that had an impact on the customers that you have or on your own business? So yeah, we're back to economics again, yeah, aren't we? Sorry about that. <laughs> you know, it's an important part of the conversation. I, I guess, um, well, you, you I'll give you a personal answer, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, we've intentionally picked a sector that's growing. Uh, and so uh, even if there's a slowdown, we're still in a sector that's growing at 50% a year, right? Uh, so I, I think uh, in many of the mature industries, um, there's a lot of pain going mm -hmm. on. Um, and we're seeing it in the form of consolidation. So multiple players in the marketplace coming together. Um, Can you give an example of that? Yeah, uh, what would be a good idea, example of that? Maybe um, something like shipping and logistics, mm -hmm. right? Um, and these are uh, businesses that have a, kind of a sexy overlay of, um, you know, web-enabled um, tracking systems and and uh, billing and and uh, that kind of very interesting sort of end-to-end -end mm -hmm. in the supply chain visibility. But then you also have a lot of ships going back and forth across uh, oceans. And I don't know, they just recently announced the first train uh, going direct from China to the UK. I've heard about you saw that. that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when all the sort of exciting tech is done, you're still talking about, you know, trucks and trains and boats and things like that. And um, in a in an economy where you know exports are slowing, and, and uh, that's, I think that's that's causing a lot of stress uh, for some of those more mature industries, because at a certain point, price becomes the only differentiator uh, for some of those companies. And that's always quite, a dangerous place to be. You become a commodity, mm -hmm. right? It mm -hmm. becomes quite quite stressful. So, with this slowdown, when you because you're so in tune with the culture 
uh, in this part of the world. Has that had any impact on the millennials who, in China, for example, who have known nothing but exponential growth since the time they were born? Do they feel that? Has it uh, altered their view about how long this gravy train continues, or are they more cautious? What's the story? Well, most of the people that I talk to in the um, who are millennials um, just have this sort of buoyant attitude and um, some of us grumpy old folks might say sense of entitlement. Uh, and if they can't find a job, they'll go to school. And if they aren't going to school, they can work for an NGO. Um, and so maybe not quite in the same way that you know we would have seen with a more traditional um, you know family structure or something like that, where um, oh I've lost my job, right? That's and but if you're not so much defined by your job, then not having a job is not as important. Um, what I do think is uh, frustrating, though, is if you expect you're going to be a vice president in um, you know 60 days, <laughs> and you're in an uh, economy or a, an environment where there's less opportunity and things are growing less rapidly, then there is, you know, there can be some frustration. Frustration. Now that that's true on the in the affluent arena, mm. but what about those who don't have so much uh, flexibility or options mm. in front of them? I I know uh, there are an awful lot of people being turned out of colleges now, graduating without jobs. Is that is that going to is that going to cause a bite at some point? Or do you think that's all going to? Well, first of all, in China, just let's look at this in relative terms. So the slowdown means going from, you know, whatever numbers you wish to believe or not believe, but right. from 12 to 10 percent to 9 percent to 7 percent to, you know, 4 or 5 percent growth. Um, so it, in absolute terms, it's a bit painful. But sorry, in relative, relative terms, terms, sorry, in relative terms is a bit painful, but in absolute terms, you're still talking about a, a growing economy. Um, and I think, um, yeah, ultimately that can be very frustrating. Um, you do see this trend, I don't know, maybe in your TED uh, arena, you've seen talks about this, but people are talking about a universal income potentially, right? right? So as automation takes over many of the more uh, routine aspects of day-to-day -day life, then perhaps all of us should just get an income to exist, right? Uh, and we don't have to work for it, it's it's just ours. And so may, maybe there's a little bit of that happening as well, where uh, you've got um, you know ambitious, intelligent people who are um, at a certain stage in their life, and then they look for that opportunity, and it's not there, but you know they may be able to continue and move forward uh, in, in other ways. Um, just your question kind of sparked off something else. So you're talking about the, the um, dialogue between East and West, right? And so, uh, you know, the difference between an urban, coastal, um, or um, growing city dweller in China, and then the rest of the populace is just enormous, right? I mean, there's, what, 50 cities over a million people uh, in China, and what, I was in Chongqing with like 30 million mind-boggling population. Yeah. It was absolutely yeah. mind-boggling. And those people are living a very different life than um, the folks you know are living in rural areas and that kind of thing. And there's a big trend um, and policy uh, in China to bring the rural people into the cities and to be increasingly uh, urbanized. But there's still a large part of the population who you know are just um, uh, you know cultivating their 
land or you know raising some animals and their their actual uh, annual cash income is still still quite low. The difference now though is that they do have access to information <laughs> that tells them about what's happening in the rest of the world. Yes, right? when the man comes by and offers them so and so much for their crop and they can uh, come back and uh, five seconds and tell the guy the price is wrong because <laughs> they've got the most recent price quote from the city, right? That's, That's a, a big game difference. changer. Yeah. So it sounds as if you, you see your continued future here. You're, you're, you're sold on this part of the world. What makes you bullish about its future, given the fact mm -hmm. that there are still lots of issues? Well, I guess um, there's a, a personal and a practical answer to that. The practical answer to that is uh, I was offered a VP job of, for international marketing in San Francisco um, some years ago. Uh, and I was thinking about whether I should take that job or not, or whether it was the right move. And um, I had a quiet dinner with my wife and a bottle of red wine. And I said, we have to make this decision carefully because I'm going to be the China guy or the Asia guy That's if true. I don't take this job. And this is the last one. There's never going to be another you know, San Francisco-based VP of marketing offer in my life. And uh, we, um, it's attractive, but we very happily said no to that. And so, um, you know, I think I'll, I'll just stay in this part of the world uh, forever. Well, but, but the <laughs> biggest source of your optimism sounds like it's based on what you've already talked about. That Yeah. Well, I guess my, my optimism comes from um, kind of three areas. One is uh, the growth of digital. And, um, you know, we've moved from digital media to digital marketing to digital business to just digital lifestyles, right? Uh, you know, like the old cartoon of the fish looking at the other fish and saying, what's water, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and um, so that's exciting, and, and I don't see that slowing down at all. Um, and I guess the second thing is uh, I like volatility and change, and that creates opportunity, right? And this is a part of the world that still hasn't settled down yet, right? There's even the more mature economies um, and societies, things are changing, and moving and, and that creates opportunity. And then I guess the third thing is um, it's nice to be special, right? I mean, when you, uh, when you look around um, the number of Westerners in this part of the world, in a place like Hong Kong, certainly you can you know, speak English uh, in the central district or that kind of thing. But uh, for all of the numbers of people that you might see gathered at a, a American Chamber of Commerce uh, breakfast session or something like that, uh, there really aren't that many of us, if you want to call them, internationalists here. Uh, and then to my earlier point, the internationalists that you meet just as well might be local people, right? So there's sort of a, a group uh, It's not so much where you come from, but what your, your mindset is. And um, I just find that a very stimulating Thrilling. environment. And, um, you know, we, we have a, a summer place in the, the woods of Maine. And I enjoy going back for a month and, you know, shopping at the local grocery store and filling up my car at the local gas station and um, having a cheeseburger once in a while. Get your American fix. Get my American fix back. And then, uh, you know, I'm delighted to come back here. And So what gets, what, what gets in the way of that future in terms of the biggest challenges? Because certainly by the way China goes in this part of the world, the way the rest of it will go, I would think. So what, what, what are the biggest challenges? We know pollution is a big issue and they seem to be working on that. What are the other obstacles? Well, I think from um, 
to get sort of a personal and a professional view, um, I think um, egotistical Western experts who come in from overseas to explain how things work are truly dinosaurs. Yes. Uh, there are so many agile, bright people with a global perspective that that role is um, fast disappearing. It's gone. Yeah. And I was, I was struck by that. I went to an um, advertising and marketing award show uh, just before Christmas. And um, I looked around the room. Here and, in this part of the room. Sorry, yeah, here, was it yeah. here in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I was struck. There were a few sort of um, ponytail creative director types around, uh, <laughs> but all the management and all the client service and all the creative people and all the digital experts, um, at least from their outward look, were you know from this part of the world. And some of them may have been from Canada, and some of them mm -hmm. may have uh, been educated overseas. But that localization. Um, just makes so much sense, right? And so, um, so I would say a personal challenge for me is uh, how do you um, assume that role of manager and innovator? Because as a chief contributor, actually there are lots of people out there who are better suited, you know, either culturally or from a language perspective or whatever, um, to actually doing the work or getting the work done. Um, other challenges out here, I guess, um, I've never been terribly bothered by pollution or those things. I mean, if you know, in the days of Sherlock Holmes in London, the reason why there was so much fog was because they were burning coal and the air was incredibly polluted. And I think uh, a period of intense pollution is kind of a, a part of an industrialization cycle. It goes with cycle. the territory yeah. to move through this cycle. And yeah. some, some Chinese officials get quite upset because they say, you guys ruined your rivers and lakes and cities, and then when you became affluent, you cleaned them up. So uh, why are you giving us such a hard time? At our, On the other our hand, it does appear that, that China is really quite serious about this, that mm. they really do see it as an opportunity. Well, first of all, a necessity, yeah. especially if you go to Beijing on occasion. and. And also that other people aren't taking it as seriously as perhaps they should outside of in the West, for example. So Absolutely. this may be a big opportunity. And they're, and they're tackling the issue at scale, right? They're not just saying, let's clean up this or let's, let's get everybody to recycle. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Um, and as you know, most glass ends up in the landfill anyway, because nobody's really figured out an end use or commercial end use for glass. Uh, anyway, so no, but they're doing it at scale, right? They're looking, how do we change the mix uh, towards hydro or um, solar um, power? And how do we put scrubbers on new coal plants and, and that kind of thing? Big so, stuff. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I, think, I think that effort to uh, clean up the country is quite, quite sincere. Yeah. I just, I don't know. It's, uh, I think I'm wondering if I'm a relentless optimist because I don't really see a lot of challenges um, to um, uh, to this region or what what specifically what you're talking about I think I guess a, a real concern um, would be uh, I am a globalist and I think uh, if we saw uh, to go back to the economic uh, discussion if there were um, strong limits on international trade uh, I think you'd see a whole different dynamic taking place where you know world of sort of balkanization or uh, nationalism. Um, if you look, for example, in um, Sing in Singapore, uh, there was a time that people were calling, you know, Singapore was the Switzerland of 
Asia, it's and true. now it's just Switzerland, right? Um, it, it, Singapore plays a global role in um, wealth management and financial services, and it's not just some sort of satellite uh, uh, duplication or replication of uh, Switzerland. It actually it's a vibrant global um, center in its own right. And uh, you know, I, I wonder if you start um, uh, having um, the ties of globalization break down and that kind of thing, and, and these both the individual countries in Asia uh, and also those connections back to Europe and, and the U.S. start to break down. Um, I think that would be um, disconcerting, right? I think at least disconcerting, if not more so. But the fact is, whether people know it or not, we've all become global. We all have to think that way. So who knows? I, I think the, it's going to be, this is a thrilling time actually to be here. Now, just having been in Hong Kong all these years though, and you've seen the major changes from the, as you called it, depending on whether you're a Brit and saw it as a handover or a, what they call it, a give back, take back, give back. Do you have issues about how Hong Kong's future lies in all this since it's not the not the same kind of power that it had at one point well i'm an invest hong kong ambassador so this is a paid political announcement oh good i love yeah. that <laughs> no i i i think that uh, hong kong is going to find a new life as a um, dynamic exciting city in china um, and that makes oh, it that's that's very that, that's important to point out what you just said yes an important city in, in China. China, and it will be less special. Uh, I mean, for many, many decades, this place had a specialness, right? Um, either as a, um, and there's no value judgment in special, whether you want to say it's good or bad, but mm -hmm. as a as a colony of of um, you know Britain. Um, but then, uh, if you look at um, let's say the convertibility of the renminbi, I think would be a good example. Uh, the amount of money that flows through this city, uh, one of the reasons why this place is so prosperous is even if you just take a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent of all of the renminbi that's flowing through Hong Kong as uh, the renminbi becomes a global currency, that's enough to sustain this place for long a long, time. long time to come. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, if, you, you know, if you look at the... Um, ties that China is building into Hong Kong now, right? So the uh, actual, you know, final handover date is, uh, let me do my math, what, 30 something years away. Um, but we now have the um, Hong Kong to Zhuhai bridge that you can drive all the way to Macau uh, now. Or I just saw that use. the other day. Yeah. Amazing, right? Yeah. Uh, and do we really need that? I mean, there you could go by ferry or you could drive around the other way. So do we really need that bridge? And I think the answer is from a um, social and cultural point of view, we do need that bridge, right? And the Chinese government and the Hong Kong government think that we need that bridge because uh, as Hong Kong moves towards you know, assimilation into all the rest of China, um, that's going to, um, as many of those ties, whether they're physical ones like bridges or the fact that um, the senior legal authorities here in Hong Kong feel they have to call Beijing before they make a final ruling in a case, you know, those types of things. Uh, 
uh, and as you can see, I'm trying to take the value judgment about it, but whether you like it or not, that's the direction that's where it's that going. things are yeah. moving into. Yeah. This is terrific. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to touch on that you think is important when you think about the, the changes and the fascination with the conversations that can take place between Asia and the West? Well, I guess I've always been very interested in um, education. Mm -hmm. um, son of a professor, I guess that's why. But um, and we didn't talk so much about that, and I think that is really interesting. Whether you're talking about like American juniors in university having a you know a year abroad, um, or do you see quite a few people will go to um, Taiwan to learn Mandarin before they venture onto the the mainland uh, to practice their Chinese in a slightly more familiar environment before they go into a more exotic environment. And um, also just looking at the numbers of, um, you know, Chinese um, high school seniors who are applying to U.S. universities, right? You, you could probably fill, you know, the freshman class of every top university in the U.S. with well, and I think very to, qualified. To relate to back to what you said much earlier, I think it's no longer just the affluent who mm -hmm. have an interest in sending their kids elsewhere. Absolutely. It seems to be a major opportunity. Now, one of the things that I had felt that I, you know, was a given to me, and I think you and I and others have talked about this over the years, was that because of China's lower school education process, which was basically mm -hmm. rote learning, mm -hmm that the West continued to have this leg up about innovation because it was so focused on critical thinking, which people say is not what happens when you learn in a rote fashion. But nonetheless, China seems to be highly innovative and it's coming from somewhere and not just from the expats anymore. And I learned recently that at least in Eastern China, the, even the grade school education is shifting tremendously. I don't know if you know anything about that, but I'm very eager to learn more. I, I don't know so much about the uh, education system, but I think that discussion of innovation is mostly baloney, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you mean that it's dependent it, on this? Oh, you yeah. just see so many innovations coming out of China. And I think there's two reasons for that. One is um, there's so much activity that a certain amount of it is bound to be innovative, <laughs> right? There's so many permutations going on. Uh, and, and so many people from which this genius can arise. Exactly. And, and again, it's, it's a cliche, but 1.3 billion people, right? Uh, and then if a bunch of those people are being entrepreneurial or uh, working in universities or in research departments or uh, in little apartments in Hangzhou, you know, doing interesting stuff, sooner or later you're going to get some innovation out of that. And then also um, there's a, um, I call it, um, you know, um, relentless pragmatism, right? Uh, and there's a there's a real spirit um, that I've seen in China, which is what's the opportunity? How do we address it? How do we fix it? And so it's not that kind of let's all sit around with post-it notes and flipboards and come up with interesting, cool concepts kind of innovation, right? Uh, but it's more um, response to a need. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. has, has anyone thought about that before? Let's build it. Let's fix it. Let's make it happen. And then how do you do that? Well, in some cases, you, you know, borrow pieces of something else and you stick it together. Uh, it's something that exists or you, you know, innovate or you create something. But we, you know, 
and I, I, I'm listening to the tone of my voice and I'm not sure I quite like where I'm going with this, but you know, we talk about like 3M and the invention of the post-it note and how they set out to make the world stickiest glue and instead they discovered something you could stick and unstick. So that's one definition of innovation. And I don't know necessarily in a Chinese context whether you see a lot of that definition of innovation. But if you look at, you know, what's, again, I'm most familiar with the web. If you look at what's coming out in terms of technologies and, um, you know, media and marketing opportunities, there's just all kinds of really, really interesting stuff. And it's like a big um, swimming ecosystem and some things live and some things die uh, out well, there in the marketplace. I think there are, you know, two things that, that, that come to mind. First of all, this sense that that certainly a lot of Westerners feel that innovation is about disruption. You come up with the Steve Jobs kind of view of the world. Well, even he, people feel, copied somebody else. But generally this idea that it didn't exist before and suddenly this thing appears. And then there's this other kind of innovation that is really more evolutionary and that improves on stuff that's already been done. And ultimately, both are necessary. And I think you're saying you're seeing a lot of Certainly the latter. Hmm. Iterative innovation that's necessary and also can be transformative, right? It, it's mm -hmm. not, it doesn't necessarily, there's a big thunderclap when suddenly everything is different, but evolving consistently over time. Uh, and then at some point you look and you say, well, things are different and they're better. Right? Indeed. And they've yeah. evolved. Well, this might be a good place to stop then. Yeah. I really appreciate this. Uh, uh, David, it's been so much fun to talk with you and get your perspective. Thank Thanks you for, for taking the time, us. and I hope the jackhammers in the background, seeing a disruption, haven't uh, gotten onto the soundtrack. That's just a sign of Hong Kong and Asia, don't you think? The national bird. That's, that's right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye. If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast, that's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast, and my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.